All right, we are back. I'd like to talk about something that I stumbled into last week, which was finally watching the Alex Gibney documentary on Steve Jobs. In it, Steve Jobs is portrayed as a salesman par excellence, an ideas guy who was loved by people around the world for the gizmos and technology he created, which people just fell in love with, apparently. Must say, in the documentary, he does not always come off very well. In fact, he often comes off very poorly as a human being. And there is some doubt woven in about his genius in the uh, technological department. Now, as a marketer, no doubt, this guy was a genius. Of course, the same might be said of L. Ron Hubbard or Donald Trump. But, uh, as we've referenced many times in this program, there's a huge backlog of material that never quite worked its way into the program, and one such item was a piece from Vanity Fair from 2009. It was looking at the new establishment of people in America who basically are striding across the landscape, changing things, uh, you know, movers and shakers, if you will. The number one guy on the list was Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs. Now, keep in mind, this was written in 2009, just a year after America's great meltdown in the uh, housing bubble, financed and bankrolled and and manipulated by Goldman Sachs, among others. But Vanity Fair ranked him as America's number one mover and shaker by virtue of the fact that Goldman Sachs took seven months to shake the government off its, off its back and repaid its TARP money, $10 billion, and returned to what it did best, which was making money. Back in 2009, Goldman's second quarter net income was $3.4 billion, which shocked even the most cynical observers. And of course, some of Blankfein's power comes from the fact that he owns $500 million worth of Goldman stock. But anyway, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent about Goldman, because the number two guy on the list was Steve Jobs, who was described by Vanity Fair as the world's most iconic businessman, a master showman who makes some of the world's most recognizable products noting that he had redefined the way we think about computers, music, and most recently, phones. And that all may be good and well, but not discussed by Vanity Fair in its brief capsule was the fact that Jobs and the company that he founded and later returned to, Apple, is maybe not such a nice player. The tech industry likes to portray itself as, you know, good guys doing good work that everybody wants. Not like those other industries out there. But that's pretty hard to square with the fact that Apple, just a couple of weeks ago, got hit with a 14.5 billion euro tax bill. The Jobs documentary pointed out how um, Apple took its copious profits and managed to avoid taxation in the U.S. by routing those funds through some sort of holding company over in Ireland. And the European Union is looking at this as a little bit unsavory. Writing about all this in the New York Times, Michael Hiltzik said recently, after years of playing international tax rules like an orchestra, the technology giant, Apple, has been ordered by European regulators to pay Ireland 14.5 billion euros in back taxes plus interest. The EU says Apple struck an illegal sweetheart deal with Dublin to pay as little as 0.005% in corporate taxes between 2003 and 2014. For Apple, that bill itself is chump change. The company could easily settle the tab 
with some of its $215 billion in overseas cash reserves. Of greater concern is that EU regulators appear determined to stop, quote, U.S.-based international tax dodgers, unquote, from manipulating the continent's loophole-ridden tax system. As one corporate tax expert put it, the EU just served notice that the easy days of single-digit tax rates are going to be over. Now, in all this discussion about Donald Trump not paying taxes, etc., etc., I do find it curious that some of the people that seem to hate the Donald the most, well, that's maybe, <laughs> got to stand in line for that one, but let's just say the people in Silicon Valley are not fans of Mr. Trump. And yet you have to ask, are they not imitating his style, his swagger in um, manipulating the tax system? In fact, I think they're probably doing it rather better than Donald ever has. Of course, the more you look into this Byzantine arrangement, the, the, the less sense it seems to make for anybody except, you know, the company who manages to, you know, play the system like a violin. Writing in The New Yorker, Adam Davidson said that uh, Apple took advantage of quirks in the corporate tax structures of both Ireland and the U.S. It funneled its European profits through a kind of quantum corporation that technically didn't exist in either country. The subsidiary, dubbed Apple Operations Inc., was incorporated in Ireland, so it couldn't be taxed under U.S. law. But because it didn't meet Ireland's residency requirements, it had no employees and no physical address, it couldn't be taxed under Irish law either. Ireland enthusiastically encouraged Apple's creative accounting because the company employs nearly 6,000 people in Cork through yet another subsidiary. In the U.S., that would be the equivalent of 420,000 high-paying jobs. But at any rate, uh, Apple just didn't start doing this recently. It's been doing it for years and years and years. Not paying what we'd have to say would be its fair share of taxes to the U.S. Treasury. Now again, people are all over Donald Trump with I think, good cause for some of his shenanigans, but shouldn't we hold Apple accountable to the same standard? Although Mr. Millen does speculate that in his defense, Steve Jobs is not known to have grabbed any woman's pudendum or, or bragged about doing so. I did note, too, that uh, during the debate, Trump accused Clinton of being against the carried interest loophole when it is a matter of record that both candidates, unusually perhaps, are in agreement that uh, this way for venture capitalists to profit from the system needs to be curbed. Now, we're not economists. We've proven that in this program time and time again. But then again, so have economists. <laughs> I can tell you from an article I read in the East Bay Times about this very topic that it's noted that when a startup company goes public or is bought by another company, venture capitalists who backed the startup receive a portion of the revenue from the IPO or the sale money that's referred to as carried interest by industry insiders. Venture capitalists typically walk away with about 20% of the cash such a deal rakes in. It's noted that the payout for the VC can be thousands or even millions of dollars, and it generally comprises the majority of his or her income. The article also noted that VC money flowing into Bay Area startups has also contributed to rising housing prices and a growing sense of a region divided into haves and have-nots. And I want to tell you that that is very much the case in the Bay Area. You're listening to KZFR 90.1 FM, Chico. And frankly, I'm sick of the behavior of these tech companies, which, you know, seem to be pr proving that rule that, uh, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Fortunately, none have gained absolute power 
yet. But holy crap, that is a subject we probably should be a little bit worried about. New Scientist magazine is worried about it, at least in an analysis they did about who has your data. Uh, Hal Hodson penned a piece that was titled Taming the Tech Giants. The subheadline was, The power of global information companies has raced ahead of society's ability to hold them to account. To quote from the piece, Do you remember your first Google search? With the world's information now at your fingertips, or perhaps the thrill of rediscovering old friends when you opened a Facebook account? From those heady early days, Google and Facebook have become custodians of crucial technologies relied upon by hundreds of millions of people all over the planet. The key to their success is no secret. The services they offer are the best, and so droves of people choose to use them. But with the droves comes data, and with that, a new form of power. This, coupled with the fact that most users understand little about the new currency, has led some to worry that there is very little holding these companies to account. The piece quotes Ariel Ezraki, who apparently studies competition law at the University of Oxford, saying, They really control what you know and what you see. They control your universe. The magazine posed the question, Is it time to rein them in? But also added the secondary question, Even if we wanted to, Could we? It is somewhat disturbing to note that it is thought that Facebook increased voter turnout in the 2010 U.S. congressional elections by at least 340,000 votes by providing an I voted button to to 61 million users, essentially peer pressuring their friends to do the same thing. The magazine goes on to note later in the piece that Public utility regulation is usually done by overseeing pricing, which people have talked about that for the tech industries. They quoted a John Mark Newman, described as a legal scholar at the University of Memphis, Tennessee, as saying that all we did was regulate prices with electricity, gas, and plumbing. That really was a rule of thumb that worked pretty well for 70 or 80 years. But it's noted this doesn't work well for Google or Facebook for a simple reason. Their products don't cost us anything, at least not cash. Other traditional responses to monopolies don't feel right either, noted the piece. The idea of breaking up Facebook seems ridiculous, as its entire usefulness comes from having everyone on one network. The same goes for Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. Each is useful because of its scale. And later in the piece, they talk about some other issues related to uh, where technology is taking us. They noted that from next year on, All cars sold by Toyota in the U.S. will come equipped with sensors that enable some autonomous driving features. But they will also collect data that will become the bedrock of Toyota's future software for driverless cars, potentially securing its growth for decades. Peace concludes by noting that our information giants are barely a decade old. What happens in the coming decade is anyone's guess. And I think this causes me to want to stop and pause and... Plug the movie Snowden yet again. The ability of technology to pry into our lives is quite disturbing. There is a scene in the movie where Edward Snowden is working for the National Security Agency, or CIA, I can't remember which stage he was in, when at one point they decide to investigate some shady individual. At this point, Snowden gets clued in that the NSA can probe into anything they like. Your private email what you've written on Facebook, anything, at least anything you communicate with and about electronically. And that 
should be disturbing. I certainly find it so and urge you to do likewise. And although I really hadn't thought about this till the Sacramento News and Review piece by Scott Thomas Anderson, it turns out that a lot of the mischief taking place currently on university campuses across the nation can be traced back to the power of technology and social media. We have uh, roundly derided things like trigger warnings on this program. In fact, we did so in the last segment. The article quoted a professor, Alice Drager, bioethicist and actually former professor at Northwestern University, who noted that in traveling the country after resigning, she had met a lot of people who were concerned about how social media has tipped the scales of power to the overly sensitive. Said Alice Drager, in almost every college I go to now, I'm told by faculty that they feel genuinely fearful about teaching because of issues like this. The issue she's referring to is the fact that uh, um, students retreat from ideas and perspectives at odds with their own. Drager told the News and Review, what's happening is the dark side of empowerment. Students used to feel that they had to shut up and listen to anything a professor said, which wasn't good. But now we have the opposite. And what we're seeing is some students think it's logical to stand up and have confrontations about anything that makes them a little uncomfortable. It's a minority of students, but they're powerful because of social media. It's what psychologists call virtue display, meaning you try and prove your own virtue by lashing out at others, even if those others actually have the same or similar values. It's dangerous. Drager said she knows dozens of examples of professors falling under administrative sexual harassment investigations for writing mainstream satire, assigning ancient texts in class, or even joking about their own marriages. Anyway, I think we should all be a little concerned about the ability of, well, mob rule to come out of social networks. They're supposed to connect us up They're supposed to link us in a way that makes us more human, but anyone who watches what Alex Gibney put together about Steve Jobs realizes that Jobs himself was not so good with people. In fact, my sources in Silicon Valley say that uh, anyone they knew who had actually worked with Steve Jobs (laughs) said he was an absolute jerk. And you do have to wonder about what his ex-girlfriend had to say, the girlfriend that he got pregnant. The girlfriend who, after getting pregnant, and at which point he now was $200 million richer from his uh, IPO, fought in court, claiming in court that she'd had numerous other sexual partners, not true, claiming that he could not be the father of her child because he himself was not capable of having children, also turned out to not be true. Oh, and by the way, he steadfastly refused to pay her more than $500 a month in child support. Yes, father of the year. But his girlfriend pointed out that, you know, he wasn't very good with people and the system that he'd created, the technology he'd created was noted by her and many other tech analysts to be divisive. It does not bring us together. It separates us. It isolates us. And to see an example of that, all you'd have to do is walk into any restaurant these days and pretty much look at any table where people under 30, perhaps under 40 are sitting, to observe everyone on their smartphone. doctor friend of mine laughed and noted that these days, when you go into a break room in a hospital, there may be eight people in there. Nobody is talking to anyone else. They all have their devices out, and they're all peering into them. 
Mr. Millen reminds us that Karl Marx once referred to religion as the opiate of the masses, but perhaps these days we have a new opiate. By the way, I think for our joke of today's program, I'll refer to some graffiti that used to be in the Larry Blake's restaurant in Davis many decades ago. Some wag inscribed above the urinal, Marxism is the opiate of the intellectuals. But uh, make no mistake about it, technology has a profound downside. Writing in the Los Angeles Times, James Campbell pointed out in August that Americans appear to be losing our connection to the outdoors. Campbell noted that as a boy, he wandered in the woods and fields unsupervised from morning until dark. But today, according to many studies, children spend less than 30 minutes per week, per week, playing outside. And as many as seven hours a day glued to TV screens, iPads, and video games. Their parents are no better. Adults pass 93% of their lives inside buildings or vehicles. Researchers say a growing number of Americans suffer from biophobia, a fear of the natural world. In children especially, a mere flock of noisy birds or a strong wind can provoke surges of anxiety, triggering the same fight-or-flight response that evolved to protect us against deadly threats like mountain lions. Campbell said, uh, that's all a shame. Evidence suggests that when kids actually do get daily exercise outdoors, it boosts self-esteem boosts problem-solving skills, boosts cooperation, focus, and self-discipline. Campbell noted that he'd seen this in his daughters. They might grumble about going for a hike, but when they return, there's a bounce in their step. Campbell said, we'd all be healthier and happier if we broke the stranglehold of electronics and make room for nature in our lives. Radio Parallax seconds the motion. On the other hand, to give some credit where credit is due, in the area of technology. It's um, noted that artificial intelligence may revolutionize medicine. We made reference to this on the show a while back, but it's worth citing again the fact that uh, medicine these days can be so bloody complicated and, and it's so impossible for doctors to really keep up with all the latest developments that we really may have to use computers to assist the physician. Of course, I do have to point out the flip side of that in having gone to the doctor myself and going to the doctor with relatives in recent years and noted that it is it has also changed. It's not how I do medicine, which is the old-fashioned way with a pen and paper and a stethoscope and talking to people and poking and prodding them and listening to what they have to say. That has become rare. These days, when you walk in to see your doctor, they're sitting next to a computer console, typing on it as they're speaking with you, spending probably more time looking at the screen than they do at you. And no, I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. In some cases, it might be very good. But, as we would stress, as in so many things, the devil is in the details. And uh, we haven't said too much about the situation over at Yahoo, which apparently uh, had, uh, what's the number on this? 500 million Yahoo accounts hacked into? Seems like a rather large number. Of course, the best part of that story is how quickly uh, Yahoo let everybody know that <laughs> there'd been some hacking going on. They waited, what, two years? And of course, the once powerful Yahoo, which has fallen on hard times, is now uh, uh, being taken over by Verizon. 
Verizon is reportedly picking up uh, Yahoo for the fire sale price of $5 billion. Even though at its peak back in January of 2000, the company was valued at more than $125 billion. People note in Silicon Valley that CEO Marissa Meyer is expected to be shown the door when they finalize that deal early next year. Uh, She apparently was brought on four years ago to revive Yahoo's fortunes. Of course, you know, part of the reviving the fortunes, I guess, is not mentioning the little issue of the hack. And uh, anyway, despite her failed turnaround efforts, she's looking to get like $57 million in severance pay. Don't we all wish we could find something that we could, you know, do a really crappy job at and then get $50 million for our efforts? I know I do. And speaking of jerk CEOs, and no, I'm not referring to Martin Shkreli. No, I'm referring to Myland CEO Heather Brench, who last year earned $19 million in total compensation. They're the makers of EpiPen. It should be noted that epinephrine itself, which, by the way, is adrenaline, the British called it adrenaline, but some bright spark in America managed to patent the name adrenaline, so we now refer to it as epinephrine. Same stuff. Adrenaline slash epinephrine can be had very cheaply. It costs less than $1 per milliliter. So how can it be that they're selling EpiPens for $600 for a two-pack? When Mylan acquired EpiPen, buying it back in 2007, it went for $100 a pop. No, excuse me. For a two-pack. $100 for a two-pack. Now it's $600. Interesting backstory in all all of this is that the U.S. FDA has uh, not authorized any competition to EpiPen through regulatory obstacles. It's estimated it would cost at least a million and a half dollars to develop an EpiPen alternative and push it through the clinical trials. So that's something to think about. On the other hand, it was recently revealed that um, EpiPen, being a non-generic drug, is supposed to give a rebate back to government agencies that purchase it. But they took it upon themselves to reclassify themselves as a generic, and generics have to give a lesser rebate back. Some think that's a little unfair. And, by the way, evidently Mylan lowered its tax bill by moving its corporate address from the U.S. to the Netherlands in 2015. All right, I think we need a break, but I've been a little bit in a downer mood here, so what can we find to lighten the mood slightly? How about an injection from an EpiPen? Well, it's funny you say that, Mr. McMillan. I do remember a, a story from my med school compatriot, Dave Fisher, the late Dr. Dave Fisher. Dave was a great guy, one of the smartest guys I have probably ever known. His dad was a professor of endocrinology at, uh, at UCLA, and I remember him telling the story one time about his mother, who was an asthmatic, once started to be symptomatic, at which point his dad responded by giving her an injection of adrenaline. Unfortunately, Pop, who was later quite a distinguished physician at UCLA, uh, was a novice at that time, and apparently the intended subcutaneous introduction of the drug instead became somehow intravenous, Dave said his mom reported feeling very spunky in a big hurry. And boy, did her symptoms disappear really quickly. And I guess that does point out why, you know, there is a certain technology in the EpiPen. You do want to get it, you know, you can put it in your muscle. And you, can, don't want, you don't want to put it in a vein or an artery. Still, these companies are, in a word, raping us. I haven't exactly lightened the mood, have I? No, we don't want to go out with rape.
All right, let's talk about a trend in the travel industry. We're big advocates of travel on this program and hope to be doing quite a bit of it uh, in the near future, which unfortunately will impact radio parallax production in a profoundly negative way. And yes, we are still planning to probably end our run, at least temporarily, at the end of this month. But I do want to note that uh, one possibility might be to take a river cruise. I think a river cruise in Europe uh, might might be well worth uh, uh, one's while. But I have found it odd that you don't really see much of this here in America. Well, that apparently is changing. Writing the Chicago Tribune, Ellen Uzalak notes that America's most storied river, our Mississippi, is getting a fresh look from travelers. It's noted that while the Mississippi may be less scenic than the Danube or the Seine, cruise traffic has been growing so steadily that European lines are jumping in and domestic rivals are expanding their offerings. On a recent trip from St. Louis to Cincinnati aboard the American Queen, Ms. Uzalak said, I became a convert. Because of its nimble size, a steam-powered paddle-wheeler can dock at the heart of any town. Passengers can borrow bikes or join hop-on, hop-off tours, and a robust program of onboard evening entertainment trumps anything that Europe offers. I have to admit, that sounds pretty good. We may have to call Stan, our resident travel agent here at Radio Parallax, and see what he's got to say about that. We'll be bringing Stan back to you at some point. Not sure when, but at some point. He does have the bright idea of visiting the stands, or at least some of them, in Central Asia next fall. Yours truly hopes to be part of that, uh, that tour, which he will be leading. Stan said to me that I was on a short list of people he would consider uh, going on this venture, because frankly, when you talk about going to Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, or Turkmenistan, not a lot of people are interested, although I think they should be. It does remind me of a date I went on on the river in when I had a boat here in Sacramento, and uh, a friend of mine and I were joined by a couple of people that we met through one of those dating sites. And to make a rather short story even shorter, I would summarize by noting that, well, it, it just didn't just didn't come together. I think what I found rather hilariously off-putting about my uh, state worker potential date was the following statement. I can see people going to, like, London or Paris or a place like that over in Europe instead of Budapest, wherever that is. My friend Michael sort of smiled at that point and said, yeah, it's, it's the, the capital of Hungary. To which she responded, whatever. By the way, long after that date, I, I did go to Budapest. Pretty cool place, actually. I've only got about six minutes left here for the final segment, so let's, let's just do some miscellaneous items. Who doesn't enjoy dumb crook stories? We do. So how about this item from the Bay Area News Group, dated September 30th. Headline, police, suspect sets fire while trying to hide. Dateline, Oakland. A man wanted for violating probation in a motorcycle theft case dropped a cigarette while trying to hide Wednesday morning at his East Oakland home, starting a fire that smoked him out into the arms of authorities, officials said. Francisco Coronza, age 49, was treated for smoke inhalation and then booked in Santa Rita Jail, where he is being held without bail. According to police authorities, Corona told them that uh, he accidentally dropped a cigarette starting a small but smoky fire in his hiding place. Of course, things might have turned out differently had the uh, suspect in this case been a member of the Mexican elite. 
It's reported that Mexicans are using social media to expose and shame the most arrogant members of the country's wealthy. In the latest viral videos, a young Audi driver who hit a bicyclist while using the bike lane to pass another car is seen yelling at the police officers who stopped him. This is Mexico. Deal with it. And call my dad. Thanks to the trending video, hashtag Lord Audi, and viewed more by more than 4 million people, the driver was identified as Rafael Marquez Gasparin, the son of a telecommunications businessman. Police said they have summoned him for questioning. We predict some stern finger pointing before he's let go. And finally, how about this item from Stockton? Evidently, a few weeks back, evidently a couple months back, the mayor, Stockton Mayor Anthony Silva, was arrested for allegedly taking part in a strip poker game with teens at a camp for disadvantaged youth. You may have read about this. It's apparently the latest in a string of bizarre incidents purported to involve the controversial California official. Silva, age 42, has been charged with a felony for allegedly secretly recording the game, which involved a 16-year-old boy, and with three misdemeanors for allegedly providing alcohol to minors. He has previously been accused of brawling in a limousine, and a 2015 murder was carried out with his gun stolen from his house. Silva who is white, also once claimed he was Stockton's first black mayor. Silva has accused his political opponents of inventing the latest scandal to thwart his November bid for re-election in the city of 300,000 people. Silva said, politics in Stockton is dirty, so anything usually goes. But this is way too much over the top. Well, we have to admit, full investigation probably isn't in yet, but strip poker with disadvantaged teens just doesn't sound good. I think that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week.